The Third Armageddon War. Codex Armageddon. Written by Andy Chambers, Jervis Johnson, and Gavin Thorpe. Pages 5 to 8. Narrated by R.J. Bailey. Phase 1. Opening Moves. Amidst the wreckage of Gazgul's first invasion of Armageddon, a lengthy investigation of the planet's readiness and defenses was begun in 948-M41. In light of the strategic value of Armageddon to the Imperium, extensive works were ordered by the Adepts of Terror to secure the Armageddon system against future attacks. Sector Naval Command was transferred to the Armageddon system, and the naval facility of St. Jowan's Dock was rebuilt and expanded to accommodate all classes of interstellar warship. Three permanently manned monitor stations were established in the outer reaches, named after three great heroes of the Second War of Armageddon, Mannheim, Dante, and Yarrick. Ground-based and orbital defenses were rebuilt and heavily reinforced, minefields were seeded throughout the system, and a substantial increase in the numbers of system ships and monitors were ordered. On Armageddon itself, the long process of rebuilding the hives, devastated by Gazgul's hordes, was begun. A process which, despite massive application of resources and manpower, remained incomplete fifty years later. In part, this was due to the increased number of defense regiments which were raised over this period, despite a lowering of Armageddon's tithe of regiments destined for the Imperial Guard. A military council was appointed to rule over Armageddon, comprising high-ranking representatives from the Imperial Guard, Navy, Departmento Munitorum and Adeptus Mechanicus, the Ecclesiarchy, and the governor of each of the major hives on Armageddon. The council was headed by General Kurov of the Imperial Guard, a respected veteran of the Bacchus Crusade. From 949-M41 to 978-M41, General Kurov coordinated a series of xenocidal campaigns conducted throughout the equatorial jungles between Armageddon Primus and Secundus, and the ice-bound world of Chosin, to eliminate orc infestations which sprang up in the aftermath of Gazgul's invasion. Fifty years passed, and Armageddon rose from the ashes, its defences stronger and more powerful than they had ever been before. Still, it was not enough. The first signs of the coming storm was a series of attacks on systems surrounding Armageddon and other worlds nearby. First, the nearby world of Minerva suffered the depredations of orc pirates. Then, the agri-world of Ruis was likewise assailed. Over a period of months, in spite of the best efforts of the Imperial Navy, the number of merchant ships reaching Armageddon was cut by half. It was as though an unseen presence knew that the Imperial forces were bound by the need to guard the Armageddon system and were not free to patrol the sector as freely as they should. Almost overnight, the pirate raids grew into assaults on outposts, and then into attacks against lightly held colonies and satellites. Soon, the first full-scale planetary invasions began. 
two dozen Imperial worlds came under attack in as many hours, and the astropaths of Armageddon received constant reports of yet more orc assaults. Every consultation of the Emperor's tarot showed bloodshed, destruction, and the sign of the beast resurgent. Rumors spread that Gazgul was returning to wreak his vengeance, and soon even the most obstinate bureaucrat could no longer deny that an orc warg of gargantuan proportions was engulfing the Armageddon sector. After Task Force Trajan was presumed lost battling orcs in the Desdina system, General Kurov sent forth a call to nearby Imperial Guard regiments and Space Marine chapters to muster in defense of Armageddon. Phase 2. Return of the Beast On the day of the Feast of the Emperor's Ascension, fifty-seven years to the day after the first orc invasion, auger probes registered a massive disruption in the Immaterium as an orc fleet tore its way back into reality and Gazgul's hordes descended on Armageddon once more. An alert from monitor station Dante was cut off in mid-transmission as the orc ships swept past in their hundreds. The monitor station's final reports indicated an orc fleet moving into the system, comprising fifty orc cruisers and over three hundred escort vessels, accompanying at least four space hulks. The forces of Armageddon were placed on full alert, and seven Imperial squadrons, led by the Apocalypse-class battleships His Will and Triumph, departed St. Jowan's Dock within twenty-four hours. The Imperial fleet, under Admiral Parole, entered battle five days later, catching the lead elements of the Orc fleet in an ambush around the high G world of Pelisuda. Sixty Orc attack ships were blasted out of the void by Imperial fire in the initial engagement, without the loss of a single Imperial ship. Then, Parole's ships were engaged by heavy squadrons of Orc kill cruisers and swarms of fighter bombers racing ahead of the main body of the Orc fleet. The Imperial ships fought valiantly, their weapon batteries pounding the crude Orc vessels into scrap, ravening lance beams incinerating wave after wave of fighter bombers. Nonetheless, the Orc fleet outnumbered that of Armageddon by six to one, and the Imperial ships were gradually battered back. The Orcs made suicidal rushes against the Imperial gunlines with unbounded ferocity, losing a dozen of their ships in exchange for a single Imperial vessel. At the height of the engagement, Admiral Parole received combursts from the Yarrick and Mannheim monitor stations, warning of three more Orc fleets entering the edges of the system. Almost simultaneously, the Triumph was bracketed by five Orc kill cruisers and crippled by their combined heavy fire and massed teleport attacks. Realizing that his duty lay in preserving the fleet for a protracted conflict, Admiral Parole reluctantly gave the order for a general disengagement. The doomed monitor stations were overwhelmed in a few hours. By their last count, the combined Orc fleets numbered in excess of 2,000 ships and at least 12 space hulks, the largest number of hulks ever to assail a world of the Imperium in its 10,000-year history. Admiral Parole 
his command reduced to five squadrons of cruisers and a single operational battleship, could do little more than mount hit-and-run attacks against the massive orc armadas as they moved in system. Imperial reinforcements would be arriving soon, and then Peral could hope that Gazgul's control of space could be challenged with some hope of success. In the meantime, Peral's escorts and light cruisers harried the orcs as best they could, distracting and drawing off their foes into baited traps and minefields, doing whatever was in their power to reduce the tidal wave of orc machines arriving in system. To their dismay, the Imperial Navy ships encountered dozens of crude asteroid fortresses, or rocks, in the normally vulnerable tale of the orc fleets. These heavily armed weapons platforms proved difficult to attack directly, but the very presence of such unusual numbers of them seemed to indicate some more sinister design at work. Surprisingly, the orcs did not turn aside to capture St. Jowan's dock. Instead, they subjected it to a six-day-long bombardment as the orc fleets moved past, enlivened by repeated attacks from assault boat squadrons. Orc warriors succeeded in establishing themselves throughout the lower sections of the dock, and, although the facility remained in imperial hands, it was rendered virtually useless by damage from the bombardment and constant orc raids. Only the arrival of two Ordo Xenos inquisitorial kill teams later in the campaign succeeded in driving the orcs back to the isotope storage pits at the base of the station. Phase 3. Ground Zero. On Armageddon, the final weeks before the orc fleet's arrival were occupied by frenzied preparation. Titan legions fired up their ancient plasma reactors and took up defensive positions around the hives, their scanner eyes scouring the skies. Imperial Guard regiments were mustered and dug in. Space marines from over twenty chapters dispersed into the wastelands and mountains to prepare to face the aliens. Imperial merchant vessels daily ran the tightening gauntlet of orc ships to rush more reinforcements to the planet. The last transport to touch down carried a legend. Commissar Yarrick, the old man himself, set foot on Armageddon for the first time in twenty years, to the rapturous cheers of the populace. The old commissar met with the military council that very night, and advised them on Gazgul's most recent tactics and strategies, adding a dire warning against underestimating the warlord's capabilities. Many said he had become old and weary, bowed down with the horrific prospect of the coming invasion. Those who knew him well could see the fierce determination that still burned in his single eye. General Kurov had always been renowned for his judgment of men in battle, and he was deeply impressed by Yarrick's drive and intelligence. He requested that Yarrick take over leadership of the military council for the duration of the current crisis, and, to the relief of all, Yarrick agreed. Six weeks after entering the Armageddon system, the vast armada of Gazgul's forces went into battle with the space stations and weapons platforms in high orbit over the planet. Those who had hoped that the powerful orbital defences of Armageddon would keep the orcs at bay were soon shown to be hopelessly deluded. 
The orbital battle raged for three days and two fiery nights, but by dawn of the third day, the skies were filled with the vapor trails of orc landing pods and the incandescent meteors of attack ships carving through the skies. Hades Hive, still a virtual ruin after the last war, was the first to die. In an act of terrible vengeance, Gazgul chose not to fight again at Hades. Instead, the entire hive and its inhabitants were smashed asunder by giant asteroids dropped from orbiting space hulks. This act of wanton annihilation was but the prelude to the bloodshed which was to follow. As the fires of Hades' destruction lit the eastern horizon, the first orc drop legions clashed with imperial forces near Volcanus, Acheron, and Deathmire. Ground-based defense lasers and missile silos took a terrible toll of the orcs as they landed, but the survivors regrouped and assailed the defenses with such terrible ferocity that soon more and more of the horde was reaching the planet's surface unscathed. Feral orcs swept down from the Pallidus Mountains and out of the equatorial jungles to join the growing hordes. Where the defenses proved too strong to be taken by direct assaults, huge mobs of orcs and their war machines were teleported directly into battle from the hulks above. As the ground defenses fell silent on the third day of the landings, Yarrick ordered every remaining aircraft on Armageddon to be thrown into the battle in a desperate attempt to destroy as much of Gazgul's hordes as possible before they reached the ground. The sulfur-yellow skies over Armageddon became interwoven with twisting contrails, as thousands of orc fighter-bombers dueled with imperial thunderbolts and furies. The imperial craft had the advantage in that they could return to their armoured airbases to refuel and rearm, whereas the orcs had to reserve enough fuel to climb back up to their terror ships and hulks in orbit. But soon, the orcs secured ground bases, and the battle turned against the brave Imperial pilots as the crushing numbers of the orcs was brought fully to bear. As the aerial battles reached their height five days after the landings, Acheron Hive fell to the orcs without warning, captured by treachery from within. Garbled reports spoke of power grids sabotaged and orcs boiling out from secret access tunnels at the very heart of the metropolis. The instigator of these foul crimes was soon revealed as none other than the infamous war criminal, Hermann von Straub. He took over the hive as its new overlord, announcing that it was his divine right to rule over Armageddon. Orc brute squads stood ready to silence any dissenters who doubted von Straub's determination. Despicably, much of the old nobility in Acheron welcomed back von Straub as a long-lost prince, choosing to genteelly ignore the fact that he had thrown in his lot with some of the most dangerous aliens the galaxy had ever seen. At Volcanus Hive, on the same day that Acheron fell, massed orc infantry surged over the twenty square miles of defences atop Volcanus Mount, just beyond the hive's outer suburbs. Seventeen garrison regiments of Armageddon Hive militia were routed, and the orcs captured many weapons and fortifications intact. 
Volcanus itself was soon besieged, surrounded by a ring of orcish steel, and relentlessly pounded by captured macro cannon and barrage bombs. Outside Deathmire, the war went better. The Titan legions of Legios Tempestor and Victorum, with their supporting regiments of Scutari, virtually annihilated the Orc Blackfire tribe in a three-day running battle across the plain of Anthrand. But the Orc landers fell from the skies like a relentless storm, and fighting spread across Armageddon like a forest fire, until every hive and factory complex was embroiled. In many places, Orc attacks were beaten off, but again and again the Orcs would regroup and attack within hours, stretching the defenders to their limit. As Yarrick had predicted, Gazgul's strategies had proved deadly. The Orcs kept an iron grip on Armageddon's skies, orbital bombardments and fighter-bombers pounded Imperial forces wherever they tried to form a battle line, pinning them in place while further landings were made to surround them. Where the Orcs were outnumbered, they fought a guerrilla war, striking at their foes and withdrawing into the harsh wastelands before retribution could arrive. Gazgul had learned the lessons of Chigon 17 well, and deliberately prepared his plans so that the fighting was scattered and chaotic, precisely the conditions in which orc warbands thrive, and imperial regiments were denied the support and coordination they needed to fight back effectively. The only force which consistently defeated the orcs was the Adeptus Astartes, and the space marines tirelessly scoured the hinterlands of Armageddon on search-and-destroy missions, to eliminate the Greenskins at any opportunity. Phase 4. Total War As the battles raged on the planet, Gazgul unleashed another of his carefully prepared surprises. Incredibly, dozens of the great asteroid fortresses encountered by Admiral Parole's ships began to descend from orbit. Slowed by powerful force fields, rockets, and modified tractor cannon, the Orc rocks made landings in the verdant equatorial jungles and across Armageddon Primus and Secundus. Many were lost to ground fire or accidents, but each one that survived became a bastion for the Orcs, a rallying point and a ready-made fortress. As well as their huge guns and missile batteries, the rocks contained giant teleport arrays like those first used by Gazgul in his Piscina campaign. These were employed to teleport down orc reinforcements, including gargants and heavy artillery, in an endless stream. Commissar Yarrick personally led attacks by Cadian shock troops supported by the titans of Legio Metallica and Legio Ignatum, which destroyed several of the fortresses, but bloody battles around many others consumed whole regiments in hours. For the rest of the war, the Space Marines bore the brunt of eliminating the Orc fortresses where they could, the Salamanders chapter winning particular acclaim for their successes against fortresses along Hemlock River. Mysteriously, the Orcs also made landings in the fire wastes and deadlands, to the north and south of the main continent of Armageddon. Even Yarrick was surprised. These grim, forbidding lands had always been believed to be uninhabitable and utterly valueless. Their value to Gazgul became apparent when weeks later 
Hundreds of tanker-sized orc submersibles rose from the polluted waters and made landings at Tempestora and Hell's Reach. Surprise was total. Tempestora fell within days, and the dockyards of Hell's Reach were soon captured. Only a bitter defense by the Hell's Reach Hive gang militias, with supporting companies of stormtroopers and space marines, which had been rushed to the area, prevented the orcs overrunning the entire hive. Fourteen days after the initial orc landings, the first major confrontation between orc and imperial war engines occurred. A ten-day battle raged over the Diabolus factory complex as the gargant mobs of Warlord Berzeruk and Warlord Scarfang clashed with the titans of Legio Crucius. Six titans and eight gargans were utterly destroyed in the fighting, and many others needed months of repairs before they could fight again. The Diabolus complex was wrecked during the battle. Its foundries and machine shops blasted apart or crushed underfoot by giant fighting machines. In the aftermath of the battle, orc speed cults swiftly encircled Infernus Hive, cutting it off from all outside help. Mechanized counterattacks into the ash wastes met with initial success, but when an entire regiment of Savlar chemdogs was surrounded and wiped out by the speed freaks, further attempts to break out were abandoned by those inside. As the beleaguered defenders pondered how to lift the siege, reports came in of a vast orc horde rounding the Paladis Mountains from the northeast. Soon, the horde was visible from the hive spire a great sea of warriors which seemed to fill the empty expanse of the ash-wastes to overflowing. Towering orc gargants strode through the tide, like great ships rolling on a green sea. The guttural war chants of the orcs could be heard from over twenty miles away, the ground shaking with their progress. Worst of all, the countless banner poles swaying over the horde bore the personal glyph of the mighty Gazgul himself. As the skies darkened beneath the shadow of orc hulks high above, and the first orbital bombardments crashed down, the citizens of Infernus knew that their doom was upon them. They made what preparations they could with preternatural calm, commending their souls to the Emperor as they built barricades or distributed weapons and ammunition to the troops. They tried to take inspiration from the legends of Commissar Yarrick, and how he made the orcs pay for every inch of ground at Hades' hive. Not all were brave enough to face their doom. Thousands fled into the wastes, to be killed or captured by speed cults which circled the hive like vultures over a carcass. The Adeptus Arbites soon moved to secure the hive, turning back or executing any who failed in their duty to the Emperor. As Gazgul's horde came within range, the last great siege guns of Infernus pounded at them, lobbing thousand-pound shells into the mass of greenskins until return fire from the orbiting hulks smashed them apart. In the brief lull that followed, Gazgul delivered to the defenders of Infernus a messenger. It was Colonel Gortar, of the chemdogs, horribly mutilated and missing his eyes and hands. The message the colonel bore was a simple one, 
which would be heard many times across Armageddon in the months to come. Surrender or die. You have been listening to The Third Armageddon War. Codex Armageddon, pages 5 to 8. Codex Armageddon was written by Andy Chambers, Jervis Johnson, and Gavin Thorpe, and narrated by R.J. Bailey. Thank you to Andy Chambers, Jervis Johnson, and Gav Thorpe for writing the fiction I grew up with. If you have enjoyed this, please leave a review where you found it, or like, share, and subscribe on YouTube, depending how you're listening. This production, like all of Oldex, is entirely unofficial and uncommercial, from an out-of-print publication, is a derivative work with all copyrights owned by Games Workshop, and is a celebration of the hobby and lore I grew up with. If you have suggestions for other old Codex fiction for me to narrate on this podcast, you can comment, contact me on Twitter at rjbailey, or email robertjbailey at gmail.com. Links are in the show description.